Luxury Hotel St. Regis Chicago changed owners just one day after opening. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about the local housing market, including how the vacation home market continues to thrive and an empty lot that's been a flashpoint in the debate over affordable housing in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. This is uh, essentially two square blocks uh, bounded by 16th and 18th Newberry and Morgan. And anybody who uh, either lives in Pilsen or passes through knows that now, 10 years after that plan and 19 years after the site went vacant, it's still vacant. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, May 18th. Secure your business accounts and start earning more with a WinTrust MaxSafe account. With MaxSafe, you get up to 15 times the standard FDIC personal protection. That's right, 15 times the protection with the liability to secure up to $3.75 million per account holder. Now that's banking as it should be. Call 833-MAX-SAFE to talk with a local WinTrust banker today. That's 833-MAX-SAFE. Peace of mind is just a phone call away. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC. See FDIC.gov for deposit insurance coverage rules. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. How's it going? I'm great, Amy. How are you? I'm great. It's it's finally feeling like summer around here. Every couple of hours, it feels like summer. Then it goes back to spring. But <laughs> I know. Last <laughs> night, like it felt like autumn. Yeah, that's Chicago for you. Well, let's talk about some real estate. So let's start by talking about vacation homes and, and the market and how that's looking. You know, I look at this every year and um, it looked this time last year, 2022, as if the steam was going to go out of those those second home markets, they had been booming insanely during the COVID housing rush because uh, you know my kids didn't have to be at the soccer field, I didn't have to be at the office. We want to have a great summer. Let's go get a place in New Buffalo, Lake Geneva, whatever it is. And so there was a huge rush uh, of buying in those areas. And it looked this time last year with interest rates going up and people going back to offices, et cetera, as if a lot of that was going to go away. And I spoke to agents at the time who said, yeah, it hasn't gone away yet, but probably soon. Now, a year later, they've given up on saying probably soon. Uh, The demand is very strong for second homes. And I went to primarily our closest second home clusters, Southwest Michigan, Northwest Indiana, Lake Geneva, Galena and Door County. And in all of those, what people say is it just hasn't given up. And and one said it's because we've really sort of had a culture change. One of the big things that, that hasn't happened as much as people thought it would is the return to the office. A lot of people are still only going to the office a few days a week. So if I don't have to be in the office every day, I can go to, let's say, Lake Geneva an hour away and work uh, stay there for four days, let's say Friday through Monday, rather than just Saturday and Sunday. So people keep buying, just keep buying in all of those places. And it's had a pretty direct impact on prices. Uh, The best comparison I had, um, when we look at prices in the Chicago area, we have hard data from the real estate associations. In those smaller um, 
markets. They don't have, they, they aren't as forthcoming with the information. So going by Zillow, I found the Zillow Home Index, um, Walworth County, which includes Lake Geneva, home prices up 36% in the three years since the COVID uh, boom began. Um, Galena up 55% in that period. Door County up 44%. And you compare that to Cook County here in Chicago up 21%. And again, those areas were 36, 55, and 44. You see that the boom really has had a strong impact there. Uh, one of the reasons is uh, inventory is very tight. It, it, there have been so many sales, first of all, that there aren't as many homes left to turn over. But another problem that uh, afflicts us here is I bought my house during the very, very low interest rates. I don't want to let go of that interest rate. I don't want to sell, um, so I'm not putting it on the market. But you have to assume that at some point there's an end to it. I mean, the the kind of second home hotspots, they are limited in quantity. As you've talked to folks, um, have they given you any sort of indication of when that inventory might start to dry out? Well, the thing is, when you think of these areas, um, think just of Lake Geneva. Um, people who can't get a house in Lake Geneva can go farther out to some of those other lakes True. Go out to um, Burlington and all those other sorts of places. Same would be true in Galena. There's a lot uh, going on outside Galena. You might even cross the river to Dubuque. Um, and of course, in Southwest Michigan and Northwest Indiana, most of the action has been on the lakefront or near the lakefront. But there's a lot of inland space, uh, both in Southwest Michigan and, and in Northwest Indiana. So that's not to say that the the demand will or the supply will never end. Sure. Uh, certainly, if I had to buy an hour from Lake Michigan, I'd probably just stay in Chicago, or an hour from Lake Geneva, I'd just stay in my Chicago or suburban home. But uh, but it does seem as if location wise, people will be able just to buy, you know, adjacent and still get a nice place. One agent in Lake Geneva told me that's why. There have been, it used to be that the sort of farm, the gentleman farms around Lake Geneva were harder to sell. And now they're selling really well because I get this farm, you know, and I'll set up a garden and I have a couple of buildings and then drive into town of Lake Geneva, town of Fontana when I need to. Just that folks that you're talking to are are willing to acknowledge this idea of a culture change is really interesting to me because I feel like in the commercial market, it, it feels anyway like there's a little more reluctance to admit, hey, things have changed. And, and you, you know, you maybe can't unring a bell that, that maybe we're just in a new time and it's going to be different now. Well, one thing to consider is I'm talking to the, the people who are getting the upside That's right. of this culture change. I'm talking to the agents in these summer home locations who are saying, yeah, you know, I used to have, I mean, they would, they will tell you, I used to have people who would come up and say, you know, I'm willing to spend this much because I'm really only going to be here weekends. And of course, not every weekend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and now they're a little more willing to spend because a term we used this time last year is second first home buyers. Right. Um, it's not so much my second home as the other place I use as my primary residence. Um, if, if I can bend those words just a little bit. Um, and, and so more willing to spend. Uh, and again, so I'm talking to the people who are the beneficiaries, the people in the Lake Geneva's Southwest Michigan's who are welcoming that cultural change because it does good things for them. Yeah, certainly. Let's uh, shift to Pilsen and uh, talk about development plans that the city has unveiled for a site that's 
been vacant since at least 2004. What's going on with this site? You know, this has been, I said in the story, this has been sort of a flashpoint in a lot of the gentrification battles in Pilsen. Formerly, it was owned by a religious association. And in 2013, after it was sold to a group called Property Markets Group, they wanted to put 465 housing units there, mostly tilted toward luxury. This is a, essentially two square blocks um, bounded by 16th and 18th Newberry and Morgan. And anybody who uh, either lives in Pilsen or passes through knows that now, 10 years after that plan and 19 years after the site went vacant, it's still vacant. When Lori Lightfoot's housing commissioner, Marissa Navarra, was appointed and took over, she announced that the city was going to buy the site from the developer. Um, there had been lawsuits. There was all sorts of trouble over the site. And so the housing commissioner announced a $12 million purchase of the site and said at the time, we're going to make sure that you know the focus here is affordable housing. So what happened this month in May is that um, the Departments of Housing and Planning, after about a six-month set of meetings with the public, came out with a development framework for those areas. It calls for 432 housing units. It's about a three-phase project. The first phase would have 148 units in it. That would be on the 18th Street part, the southern part of the site. Uh, but ultimately, built out in three phases, 432 housing units. The emphasis is on affordable housing, but the city doesn't say. What Marissa Navarra explained in our story is that um, the city doesn't say this has to be affordable housing. The city says, developers, give us your plans. We're going to look very kindly on affordable housing because that is a mission of uh, City Hall and these departments vis-a-vis uh, -vis this or looking at this site. So um, we don't yet know what will go on there. We know what the city now says it wants on there would be three high rises on 16th Street. And they haven't said how high a high rise is. But if you look across the elevated railroad tracks there, you see six and seven story buildings. So they're thinking of something in that scale. And then scale it down as you go from 16th to 18th, which is more of a traditional low rise section of Pilsen. Right, right. I think that's an important distinction to make because when we think high rise, we think, you know, 40 floors, we think this kind of behemoth of a building, which would certainly stick out in Pilsen. It would. I, I mean, I think I would estimate that these would be buildings under 20 stories high, 10, 15 stories high. We don't know that. It all depend, depends on what a developer says. You know, maybe a developer says we want to put something really significantly high here in order to achieve that density and have more green space. Don't know that will all play out in not only in developers' proposals, but community meetings about those proposals over the course of the next several years. Yeah, that was exactly what I was about to ask you next, that I know there's a lot of steps, but do you have a sense of kind of the timeline that the city's aiming at here? No, not really. Uh, it, June and July, developers are supposed to submit their proposals for that first phase, and um, and then everything sort of follows from there. So it, it still is a matter of time. Um, and the amazing thing is this is a site in a vast gentrifying neighborhood that has sat fallow since 2004, so 19 years at this point. And by the time shovels go in the ground, let's say late this year, if that happens, um, that will finally begin to turn this site. 
Yeah, that'll be interesting to see how it, how it lands and what it looks like in a, in a year or two. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, anytime I get to say this word, it's a pretty good episode. So tell me about Aloha Lodge. Aloha Lodge. Because I feel like we need a music cue of some Aloha music right now. But this is a place in Lake Geneva for what's the price tag? $35 million. This is such an interesting property. $35 million for those who have been watching the Lake Geneva market is just below that record $36 million that the Reyes family paid for Richard Driehaus's estate. That's on the north shore of Lake Geneva. This is on the south shore of Lake Geneva. This is called Aloha Lodge. I love that. We'll get into the history of the building, but the family that built it, Tracy and Ann Drake, and we'll explain the connection to the Drake Hotel, they had spent a lot of time in Hawaii and they were friendly with, according to a historical article I read, they were friendly with the last queen of Hawaii who was deposed. I'm not going to make a mess of trying to pronounce her name, but they named it Aloha Lodge uh, partly in honor of her as well as in honor of just their love of Hawaii, um, which is pretty cool. So built in uh, the house was built in 1900, 1901, uh, right on the south shore of Lake, Lake Geneva, Geneva Lake. It has 368 feet of shoreline. It was built by Tracy and Ann Drake. Tracy Drake was one of the two brothers who built the Drake Hotel after this. Um, their father was a successful hotelier in Chicago, and had, he had a, Tracy had a lot of money, built this estate, uh, designed a mansion designed by Howard Van Doren Shaw in that early 20th century real heyday of Lake Geneva baronial estates. Uh, the family had it until about the 1930s, and in 1998, it was purchased by Harold Byron Smith who is uh, a descendant of the family. He's a member of the family that founded Northern Trust, uh, that ran Illinois Tool Works. He was a chairman of the Illinois Republican Party. He bought it in 98, did enormous restoration and addition, um, died in October. And so his estate is now selling it for $35 million. It's, it's such an interesting place because, so it's got this big sort of Southern plantation style uh, or I guess what we would should really call, let me say that again. The main house has this Southern colonial style uh, look from 1900, again, by Howard Van Doren Shaw. Then it has two wings that have been added on. And there are two other buildings on the 12-acre site. One is called the Captain's House, because at in the early days, the Lake Geneva estate owners would have a boat captain who operated their own personal steamboat on Lake Geneva. And this would be the house the boat captain lived on. I know there's one of those at your condo. Well, you, sure. you guys have next door condo called the captain's condo, right? Who doesn't have that? <laughs> next to that, the other building on the property is called the train house. It's an 1800 square foot house, which is the size of, of a two or three bedroom house um, filled with a model train set. Oh, wow. Uh, and the real estate agent told me that she thinks, unless a model train enthusiast is the $35 million buyer, that probably becomes sort of an entertainment house. It has kitchen and bath and everything. And so you've got your very large main house. You've got your uh, captain's house guest quarters. You've got your train house. And you have this broad expanse of lakefront. And when you look at the house, I think you've seen the pictures it really stretches across its lakefront. I mean, it really is your lakefront estate. 
looking west. And so another reason that it's called the Aloha Lodge is that you're looking out at the sunset. And I guess in 1900, you could look out at the sunset in Lake Geneva and imagine you were in Hawaii. Um, Really a phenomenal place. Really, it's been updated beautifully. Another, a competitive agent I spoke to who is not the listing agent on this said that it fits in among, for example, the Driehaus house uh, as these old legacy homes that have been so well updated that they're really worth the $30 million price tag. We also had one uh, that sold, uh, they sort of tried to sell at the same level, but the house was sort of disheveled. It was also a Howard Vendor and Shaw house. And it, as you recall, has been demolished. They paid, uh, they sold it for 17 million and it's been demolished. Um, but this house and others, uh, according to this one agent, really sort of fit the, the model of an old Lake Geneva house really brought up to date and worth, he didn't say it's worth 35 million exactly, but you know, they're at that level. It's a, it's really, a, oh, 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 sorry. One other detail I forgot. Not only did the Drakes live there, but they, so they lost the house in the depression. Their China is still there. And so when you're at the old Drake Aloha Lodge, you are eating off their china. Wow. Which I think it's just fascinating. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. Also, I love these these sort of auxiliary buildings. Yeah. The Driehaus estate had the little, the children's village of little houses and, right. and the guest pavilion. and Right, good memory. There's the train house and the captain's house here. That could be like the the man cave and the babe cave or whatever <laughs> and the babe cave well i would have a llama barn that would be mine if i had 12 acres a llama barn boy would your lake geneva neighbors be delighted they would. I think they would. well he's really nice but he brought a he sure brought a lot of llamas with him <laughs> <laughs> well on 12 acres i could put the llamas far from the neighbors the llamas can have their own dwelling they get their own little house it's the llama village i like that the llama. All right. Well, let's talk about some houses. We have several to talk about. Let's start with a house in Lake Forest that sold quickly that belonged to former bear Tom Waddle. Yeah. So we just talked about this a couple of weeks ago because he put it on the market and it went under contract in six days. Now it has sold. So we know, I said at the time, it's likely to go for near the asking price because it went under contract so quickly. Uh, it didn't go for more than the asking price. I was surprised, but it went for $3.1 million. They were asking 3.25, so uh, they didn't get their full asking price. But the interesting thing is uh, it was on the market for six days. And I looked at the other six houses in Lake Forest that have sold for $3 million or more so far in 2023. The average they were on the market was 93 days. So this was a fast one. Yeah, six days is pretty good. Yeah, six days compared to 93. And so I asked, I was not able to talk to the Waddles. Um, They... I have not returned my calls, but their agent said that she thinks the reason it sold so well is that it has, it's just really pretty inside. Um, it, uh, it has this very grand double staircase and big rooms with arched entryways. And, um, and it also is, it's a really interesting, it's a nice location. It's somewhat secluded. It's on the West side of Lake Forest near uh, a Highland Park nature center and a Lake Forest sort of cultural arts campus. And so it, it's somewhat secluded, looks nice, and sold in six days. Yeah, six days. That's pretty good. We don't, we don't uh, see a lot of those. All right, let's talk about a, a condo in the St. Regis building. 
Yeah, this is so this is an interesting one. You know how I, I look at individual properties as sort of bellwethers. This was a $6.5 million sale at St. Regis this week. That's great. It's the second highest price of the year so far, 2023. We're, we're not at six months, but we're pretty far into the year. It's the second highest price, um, and it sold for about $6.5 million. So I looked, you and I have been talking, is there a slowdown at the upper end of the market? This is a real strong sign that there is. So there have now been two sales in 2023 at $6.5 million or more. Mm, okay. At this point last year, there had been 11. At this point in 2021, there had been seven. At this point in 2020, we were all nutso, so it doesn't count. But at this point in 2019, there were four. So four, seven, 11, and this year two. So it does appear that at this point, we really can say that that extreme upper end has slowed down. The other way that I count, you know, I look at, so that's sales at 6.5 million and up. But I also, just because I have for years, I track everything at $4 million or more. Um, there have been 24 so far this year, as of mid-May. Last year, there were 46. So it does appear that, that at last, it is starting to sort of, um, let's say, catch down to the rest of the market. Uh, the rest of the market slowed down dramatically in 2022, and now that upper end seems to be doing it as well. And I want to emphasize, this is sales in the Chicago area, not just in the city. So people who have their Chicago bashing ready. Need to keep in mind, we're talking about the Chicago metro area, not the city, not strictly the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. That's important to, to underscore that. That is a big difference though in numbers. I mean, this, like at the end of, at the, let me say, I'm so tongue tied today. Uh, you know, as we were closing out this past year, we were both just kind of amazed at this, you know, gangbusters numbers that we were looking at. And then that ceiling kept going higher and higher. I mean, this, that's interesting. Like what a stark difference. It could change. Who knows, right? Who knows? The second half of the year could look totally different than the first, but that's really interesting that here we are, you know, starting to close up May and that's what it looks like. Yes, it definitely could change. Um, I I have no way to predict what numbers we'll be looking at at the end of, of 2023, but it is clear that in the first part of 2023, um, some of that excitement has, has gone away. Yeah. Cooled off. If only you could predict that. If only you were the residential real estate psychic, then then that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that third word is on my business card, but I'll let you know if it ever gets added. <laughs> That'd be fun. Someone's got to do that. I'm sure that exists somewhere in the world. Residential real estate psychic. All right. Um, speaking of condos, tell me about uh, this condo in Streeterville uh, owned by Mario Tricocci of Hair Fame. Of Hair Fame. Yeah, this is, boy, this place. Oh my gosh. 27th floor looking east, essentially right at the mouth of the river, um, looking east. It's on the north side of the river. It's in Streeterville. On the south side, it would be in Lakeshore East. Uh, really spectacular place. Um, real emphasis on indoor, outdoor. The east wall of the condo is 50 feet wide, glass, two stories high. So really, you are looking at Lake Michigan, and, and you look at the sight line. Um, it really is uninterrupted. That could change if anything ever gets built on the former site of the Chicago Spire. But uh, you're looking out endlessly over Lake Michigan. And it's got all kinds of nice things. You know, the, the, the glass opens and you've got this indoor-outdoor space. But to me, the most amazing part was it's got an outdoor bocce court. Oh, that's on cool. On the 27th floor. So you're, if you have always wanted to play bocce while watching the Navy Pier fireworks... 
I have great news for you. <laughs> Here it is. Here's your four and a half million dollar condo. It's I, I I could not verify that this is the highest bocce court in the world, but it's certainly one of them at 27 stories um, and outdoors. It's it's fascinating to me that you know you had a little space on your terrace. Might have been a dog run. Might have been just empty space. Mm-hmm. A garden, whatever. Yeah, and you made it a bocce court. This is, it's a really beautiful condo. Um, Mario Tricocci and his wife, who has since died, Cheryl, uh, bought the place when it was new, finished it out. Really spectacular. Crisp white throughout. Nice wood trim. Beautiful. I think you saw the pictures of the staircase. The staircase looks like a sculpture, a stack of boxes of wood. Really spectacular. Um, and let's talk about who Mario Tricocci is. Uh, he arrived in Chicago in 1960, opened his first hair salon in the Chicago suburbs 60 years ago this year, 1963. Still owns the business. Um, He married Cheryl later, and according to her obituary last year, her kids say she was really sort of the business leader. She got him out into, he opened one of the first hair salons in a shopping mall. Um, Again, remember, he started in business in 1963. A lot of things that are standard now, he was early on. She got him to do that. She really led a lot of the business. Uh, and now the company is 13 salons, and I think it was 1,300 employees. Unfortunately, I couldn't reach Tricochi. I left a message for him. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about why this place looks so its sort of airy and beautiful. I think, I, I, I think given his Italian background, it has to do with time spent on the Mediterranean, but that's just me speculating. Sure, sure. Well, we'll see how it uh, where it lands and and how quickly that one sells for sure. Did I? I'm not sure if I said, Amy, that they're asking. He's asking 4.5 million. That important detail. Just in case I didn't. Just in case a listener wants to snap that up. A bocce playing listener wants to snap that up. <laughs> you realize that as soon as we're done, I'm going to try to find out the the highest bocce court. Well, good. I hope you find it. I was not able to. I hope you can you can do me one better. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Because I'm curious now. Then that would be very cool if this was it. Yeah. All right. Let's go to Lincoln Park now. I want to talk about the new home of Robert Zimmer, former University of Chicago president and chancellor. Tell me about this place. Uh, Robert Zimmer, who was the president and then chancellor of the University of Chicago, stepped down last summer, um, health reasons. And he and his wife, Shadi Barch Zimmer, just bought a house for $3.3 million in Lincoln Park. Uh, We talked last summer about their condo on the Gold Coast that at that time was for sale for $3.6 million. The price has come down to $2.95, probably because they're ready to unload it because they now have the new house. Beautiful house. I should say my competitor at the Tribune was the first person to catch this sale, but then we reported it as well. And um, really a beautiful, very contemporary home, actually sort of a match for the Mario Tricocci penthouse. One of the best things about it is in the back, um, so on the, on the street side of the building on the front, two, three stories of glass. The living room goes up two stories, very sunny, wonderful. On the back of the house, the complement to that is a nano wall, which we've talked about many times, a folding wall of windows that just folds all the way away so you have nearly the full opening open um, so that if you were to push that apart on the back wall of the house, the living room and the patio really become one big open space. 
beautiful contemporary styling throughout. That Nana wall is pretty cool. There's a rooftop deck with a, a full outdoor kitchen. Really pretty. And um, they bought it for $3.3 million. All right. One more house to talk about. I'm very excited to talk about this one. This is an Evanston home. It has White House ties. It is 129 years old. And it has a fireproof library. Okay. Those are a lot of cool things all in one thing. Tell me about this place. Yeah. Um, well, so let's talk about the fireproof library first, because Elliot Anthony, the man who built it uh, in 1894, and his wife's name is slipping my mind, but they had lived in Chicago at the time of the fire. Uh, he was he was involved in all sorts of institutions in Chicago just prior to 1871. He supposedly had the largest private library in Chicago, a few thousand books, and tried to save them from the fire by burying a bunch of them underground when the fire is approaching. There's a there's sort of an apocryphal story I found from his son who was saving other things from the house. And his father basically said, dummy, what we need to save is the books. <laughs> so 20 years after the fire, they build a house in Evanston and it has a fireproof library because he'd lost so many books previously uh, after the fire, he led the effort to start the new Chicago Public Library, but then to protect his own library of books at his new house in Evanston, they built it fireproof. Uh, it's a beautiful room. The iron doors that are mentioned in an old article about it seem to be gone, so it's probably not as fireproof as it was in 1894, but also not as big a requirement because we have other fire safety standards. Um, designed by Pond and Pond, who were uh, architects of some really beautiful homes in Evanston, as well as buildings on several universities, not only in Chicago, but in Michigan and elsewhere. Uh, really just a gorgeous house. And um, they're asking $2.15 million for it. The people who own it now have had it for quite a while. They have, uh, what are they, the third? There haven't been that many owners. So most of the historical detail is in there, including these beautiful fireplace mantles, gorgeous staircase railings, things like that, that they, uh, that had been preserved for a very long time and that they kept maintained, but they also added climate control and, and a lot of other 21st century things so that you're living in this historical house. Oh, 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 sorry. And you mentioned two presidents. Elliot Anthony was an associate of Abraham Lincoln. Various reports differ, but uh, he supposedly was one of the people who quoted Lincoln saying, there's a man who can cram very little fact into a lot of talking. Um, he supposedly is one of two people who might be the source of quoting Lincoln on that. He also was one of the founders of the Republican Party in Ripon, Wisconsin, which of course became the party that nominated Lincoln. Elliot Anthony died four years after the house was built, but his family kept it for a couple more decades. And then they sold it to a family who were cousins of Charles Dawes, who was later the U.S. vice president, having no connection to Lincoln whatsoever. Um, and so they, and very close connections, they had shared servants and they were in and out of each other's houses. So very close to a man who became vice president. So Lincoln is attached to the house. Charles Dawes is attached to the house. Fireproof Library is attached to the house. It's pretty remarkable. And if you visit chicagobusiness.com, you can see pictures of this house. There's some really neat details. The wood is so impressive in this house, especially in that, that reading room. It, it almost looks like a tent. 
I don't know how to say this, like you chopped an octagon in half and made that your ceiling. It's kind of these cool panels with really neat just wood detail that's just gorgeous. I'm really not sure why it looks like that. You would, I, I thought a library would be a flat roofed space. I don't know. It might have to do with fireproofing. I don't know why there's this sort of um, do, essentially domed but angled ceiling, uh, but that really does make it a really nice room. Oh, and there's all just lots of cool details of, of uh, you know, above the windows and, and all, just lots of gorgeous wood. It's a very, very, very neat house. Well, another one we will have to revisit soon. All right. Well, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? You know, I have a story. I, I don't want to say too much. I have a story about a really interesting house. Okay. You always do. <laughs> this one's even more so. Really interesting house being sold by a really interesting guy with a really interesting approach to selling the house. He has his own theory on how to get a house sold. He's got a a spectacularly beautiful house. Interesting. um, And he wants to do it his way. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm all ears. Well, I'll meet you back here this time next week and we'll talk all about it. Thanks so much, Dennis. Okay. Thanks, Amy. Coming up on his second day in office, Mayor Brandon Johnson toured temporary shelters for asylum seekers arriving in Chicago by the hundreds. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard about here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com slash subscribe and using code DAILYGIST, all one word, at checkout to redeem this offer. So be sure to visit chicagobusiness.com slash subscribe and enter code DAILYGIST to get this deal while it lasts. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Just one day after the St. Regis Chicago opened as the city's first new luxury hotel in a decade, the property changed hands. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that a joint venture of real estate investors Gencom and GD Holdings announced that it had acquired the 192-room hotel, which opened Monday on the lower floors of the city's third-largest skyscraper at 401 East Wacker Drive. Chicago-based Magellan Development Group, which completed the glassy 101-story Lakeshore East Tower in 2020 will maintain a stake in the hotel as part of the deal. Ecker noted in reporting that the purchase price was not disclosed, but real estate services firm Jones Lang LaSalle said in a statement that it helped arrange $76 million in acquisition financing for the deal from investment firm Varde Partners. Ecker also noted that the sale adds a new chapter to the eventful development story of the $1 billion tower, which was originally billed as the Wanda Vista Tower when Magellan and Chinese conglomerate Dalian Wanda broke ground in 2016. The Wanda name was later removed after Dalian Wanda bowed out and later sold its 90% stake in the development to Magellan and partners Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. Magellan in 2020 struck a deal with St. Regis Hotel hotels and resorts to operate the hotel and gain naming rights to the tower. 
At roughly $400,000 per room, the value of the loan GenCom and GD took out on the hotel is among the highest on a per-room basis ever taken out on a Chicago hotel, said Jones Lang LaSalle Executive Vice President Jeff Bucaro, who helped arrange the mortgage and who spoke to Cranes. The St. Regis Chicago, which is the 54th St. Regis property to open worldwide, but only the 11th in the U.S., will test the high-end limits of what guests will pay for a single night in a luxury hotel room downtown. Opening room rates at the property start at around $700 per night, an unprecedented high for the Chicago market. The hotel is the first new luxury hotel to open in Chicago since the Langham Chicago debuted at 330 North Wabash in 2013. Ecker also noted in reporting that Magellan is also working to sell more of the 393 condo units in the St. Regis Chicago Tower. About 65% of them have been sold so far, according to a report from industry publication CoStar News. In other reporting from Crane's Danny Ecker, a Cook County judge ruled last week that co-working company Industrious owes its former West Loop landlord more than $2.3 million for walking out on its lease in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Ecker noted that in what will likely be seen as a win for all landlords that have leased space to major co-working providers in recent years, the court found that New York-based Industrious committed fraud and violated its contract with Stockbridge Capital Group the San Francisco-based investor that used to own the building at 600 West Jackson, where Industrious closed a location in 2020, according to court records. Stockbridge alleged in a 2020 lawsuit that Industrious stopped paying rent in April of that year and was abandoning the $4 million in remaining rent payments on a lease that runs until 2030. Ecker noted that Industrious, according to the complaint, told Stockbridge at the time that only the special purpose entity formally tied to the lease is responsible for it, not Industrious itself. The lawsuit said that Industrious claimed that venture, known as Industrious Shy 600 West Jackson LLC, no longer had any assets and offered $14,000 to Stockbridge to settle the outstanding rent. But the Cook County judge wrote in the May 12th decision that the LLC and Industrious, quote, are one and the same and share all contractual obligations under the lease and assignment. The judge ordered Industrious to pay more than $1.6 million in damages and $735,000 in attorney's fees. Ecker noted that the damages were smaller than the full remaining rent because they don't include future rent beyond Stockbridge's ownership term, which ended in October of 2022 when Stockbridge sold the eight-story property. But Ecker also noted that the ruling could have a ripple effect for industrious at other locations and potentially for other co-working giants like WeWork. Shared office providers grew quickly in the years leading up to the pandemic by offering low-risk, flexible office space that could be rented by the month. Many formed individual ventures that signed leases for each location they opened, a standard move in real estate to limit a parent company's liability. Those leases sometimes come with letters from the parent company guaranteeing terms of the deal in case that particular location fails. But some deals don't include such guarantees or provide ones that cover only short periods of time. Evidence in the case, the ruling said, showed that Industrious, quote, maintained control of the LLC by setting its member dues, controlling access to its bank account, and making the decision to cease the LLC's operations, among other steps. The judge ruled that Industrious committed fraud, breach of contract, and violated Illinois' Uniform Fraudulent Transfer Act. 
But Ecker also noted that the decision comes less than a month after another dispute became public between industrious rival WeWork and its landlord at 125 South Clark, where WeWork recently closed a location as part of a wave of closures of what it described as underperforming offices. The owner of the building filed an eviction lawsuit seeking to recover rent it may be owed under WeWork's lease in the building through late 2033. Owners of an estimated 220,000 Jeep Cherokees worldwide are being told to park their vehicles outside as an electrical short within the model's power lift gauges may cause a fire, even when the vehicle is turned off. The models affected were built between 2014 and 2016, and at the time, the Stellanus factory in Belvedere near Rockford was the only manufacturing facility producing the SUV for the North American market. Stellanus idled the assembly plant there in February. Under the just-issued recall, owners are advised to park their vehicles outside and away from structures as well as other vehicles. According to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, a remedy is currently under development. It's not clear how many of the Cherokees have caught fire, but Stellanus says in documents posted Tuesday by Transportation Department officials that it has 50 customer assistance records, 23 warranty claims, and 21 field reports due to the issue. The company says it's not aware of any injuries. Stellanus recalled many of the same vehicles in 2015 to fix a similar issue. On his second day in office, new Mayor Brandon Johnson visited a police station and Park District Fieldhouse on Tuesday to tour the city's makeshift shelter system for asylum seekers who continue to arrive in the city by the hundreds. Crane's Justin Lawrence reported that Mayor Johnson made stops in Little Village and the near west side with the local alderpersons to meet with migrant people and see the facilities they're living in as the city scrambles to find a long-term solution to the humanitarian crisis that isn't expected to end anytime soon. Like former Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Johnson took aim at Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who has sent people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas on buses to Democrat-led cities like Chicago, New York, and Washington, D.C. without coordination, with Johnson calling it, quote, wicked and unconscionable. Lawrence noted that Johnson did not get into specifics of how his administration would handle the crisis, but said he's working with alderpersons and community leaders to find new facilities, and said that he took the city's request for additional federal funding to the White House during his visit to Washington, D.C. last week before being inaugurated as mayor. Echoing his comments during his inaugural speech Monday, Johnson stressed that the city's problems must be solved collaboratively. Johnson also said the administration would have to do a better job of communicating with the communities that are hosting incoming people at makeshift shelters. Earlier this month, city officials in a town hall in South Shore were shouted down while presenting plans to convert a vacant high school into a shelter. Lawrence also noted in reporting that an executive order Lightfoot signed last week opens up the possibility to request the National Guard, but that decision will be left to Johnson and Pritzker. Johnson issued his own executive order on Monday that creates a new deputy mayor for immigrant, migrant, and refugee rights that will, in part, be tasked with coordinating the city's response, although Johnson has not yet appointed anyone to fill the post. The City Council's Budget Committee advanced a $51 million emergency funding amendment last week that Johnson said he hopes will be approved at next week's City Council meeting.
That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rotkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.